We are live, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Crypto Gaming Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ben Gothard, and today we have the honor of speaking with the one, the only, Mr. <laughs> Will Robinson. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. I'm a one of one. It's very rare. That's right. Like one of the most rare NFTs, but in human form, mm. which is mm. very relevant to uh, what uh, I think we'll get into today. So I'm super excited. You obviously have your hands in the um, the DeFi space, the metaverse space, Web3. Um, they're all it's all there. Uh, it's wonderful. And if I'm if I saw correctly, you also have a PhD in game studies. That's, That's pretty right. rad. So you have an amazingly cool perspective on this whole world. I would love to know how you got here and uh, you know which was your story. Sure. So uh, I've been uh, at DeFi Alliance now. I like to tell my story backwards. Let's try that. I've been at DeFi Alliance now for nine months and the head of the Accelerator program here. Uh, if anybody wants to get accelerated and is building in Web3, don't let the DeFi parts scare you. It's all good. <laughs> um, we've accelerated NFT projects, game projects, and DeFi projects now for over a year, uh, almost two years. Uh, and I've been here basically handling partnerships uh, and also handling uh, mentors and making sure that teams have a really great time. They learn a lot and they do a lot of one-on-one -on -one mentoring too with an amazing team from DeFi Alliance. Um, I got here because I was doing forensic crypto audit uh, in institutional settings. So whether it was like the Ethereum's wallets or high net worth individuals uh, in the Cayman Islands or exchanges in Malta or Canada or Korea, like if you had to be publicly audited, I was like usually on the case. Uh, and then before that, I got a PhD in game design and game studies uh, where I did like philosophy work. So like feminist, Marxist, post-colonial, humanities general work on games, uh, experimental games, art games, I made a lot of game prototypes. I never tried to make money with games, so I have no famous games whatsoever that you'd ever heard of. Um, and then, uh, yeah, before that, studied film. Uh, and I've been doing DeFi and crypto now for two, four, four, four and a half years. Uh, and uh, I had the uh, total blessing of having a cousin in, in crypto earlier than me and able to drag me in. Uh, and so everybody needs that one person to like pull them hard. And, and I had that early. So that, that was my advantage. That's amazing. Did you, why did you get into game design and pursue your PhD in the first place? Sure. So uh, it all started when I was um, in CGEP, which is like kind of like middle school, but in Quebec, it's between high school and college. Uh, and I'm studying uh, sciences and I'm really good at it, but I decided on a lark to take a cinema class and I like totally crush it. Like everybody obliterated, I get like a perfect score and I'm like, man, this is really fun and really easy. So I'm going to go do uh, a college degree in that. Uh, and my academic advisor was like, no, don't do that. Sciences pay way more and you're doing very well in that. Like, uh-uh. I'm, I see a trend. I'm going to be really good at this. Don't worry. I'm going to be the best and it'll be fine. I'd rather be the best at this than like competent at this other thing. Right. Um, and I get there and it turns out people watch way more movies than I do uh, at the time. <laughs> uh, and they're like way more involved and care more about everything around movies. They want to make movies. And I'm like, I just want to watch movies, man. What, are, what am I doing here? 
Um, and so I like pivot like a startup trying to like be the best at something uh, and realize I'm playing way more video games than them. Uh, and so I decide to uh, convince all my supervisors the, and all of the teachers and all my classes that I know this is a cinema program, but I'm going to be doing games. Just want you to know that. And they're like, okay, I guess <laughs> like that's weird, but sure. You know, games are a fad. Right. Um, and I was like, uh, yeah. Okay. And then they'd be like, next step is you have to tell me why to care about games. Cause I have no idea why you would. Uh, and so I started looking at what's the difference between games and film uh, and look deep inside, like, you know, they both have text, they both have music, they both have characters. What's so different? Like it's moving images that, you know, you've got animated films. So like what makes them special? Um, and certainly like the stories in games are like not better than the stories in films. Like I, no matter how many people say that, like someone who studied both, like sort of just better at telling stories. Right. Um, but uh, the protocols in games are different. The opportunity space, the possibility space of games leads to, new kinds of stories that you maybe can't tell in cinema. And so this is this initial Alain is like, how do rules tell stories? How do rules shape player behaviors? How does a game designer set up some kind of objective and then place obstacles in the way and have that experience of trying to, you know, reach that objective be meaningful to a player, not just fun. Like fun was kind of boring. Like, like make them cry, make them think, make them like reflect on themselves, make them reflect on the world. How do we like communicate through games, actually through games? Yeah. So that was a rabbit hole. It turns out uh, it's a really complicated issue. Uh, I, you know, spent a master's looking at how um, not only game designers communicate through games, but players. And I looked at like virtuoso players and esports athletes. Um, and then for the PhD, just a full focus on, how do we make like a new kind of art form from games? And so had you been doing this with crypto in mind at all? Nothing. So wow. what, it turns out I had reverse discovered this thing called mechanism design or reverse mechanism design, which is big in the you know economic world. Um, and I wasn't doing economics at all. Didn't do any game theory at all. Um, instead, they call it procedural rhetoric in game studies. Um, it's like a field started by this brilliant philosopher out of Georgia Tech called Ian Bogost. He was actually on the Colbert Report. You can watch his episode. It's pretty funny. Um, and uh, he you know, has this great you know, argument for how games do things differently uh, than cinema and creates this kind of subfield that I, that I was deeply focused in. And when I finally got out of it and got into the crypto world, I was like, oh, there's a whole other field that studies this, uh, but it's not for narrative sake. They study it for like efficiency sake or like distribution of public goods sake. But like, I, we were just trying to tell stories with economics, it turns out. That is so cool. So you almost built out the skill set that would become incredibly valuable in the Web3 world, the world of crypto gaming, just by kind of following your passion and seeing where your curiosity led you. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, it reminds me of this, um, this Paul Gray of, like, advice, uh, which is just, like, follow what you're, like, really interested in. Like, if you're, you know, uh, just focused on the very edges of what we know uh, and you're passionate about that, like, at some point, that'll what you're doing on weekends will be what other people do on weekdays. Um, you know, just given enough time. And, and that's what happened. That is such an important thing 
to, to I, I feel like it's something that like an important concept that a lot of people struggle with because at least from my perspective if you're going down that rabbit hole and you're really interested in something like to the point of obsession and you're learning about it and playing with it and tinkering with it like you could start off at a place where yes there are other people there and they're kind of building that and they're kind of on the frontier but then you may have a spin on it or a perspective or you may discover something that's just a total game changer but you only got there because you were curious and you tinkered and you went down the rabbit hole to the degree where you cared enough to actually create something original or new to me that's where some of the best innovation comes from is like at the end of the curiosity rabbit hole yeah i mean that makes sense right that's where the undiscovered is and so if you could get past the friction of trying to learn new things uh and if you can be resilient i mean god phds are so long um and there was like a year where i didn't write anything like i was just like in like a depression coma trying to like handle like the anxiety of building a phd it's so shitty like they should not make therapy optional when doing dissertation work <laughs> like for anybody out there who's doing that like hire your therapist early uh yeah uh and no but it was great i i i started like buying every game and playing all of them just to like get a good catalog index but not just like video games like i have like 400 board games uh, I absolutely love like learning new game rules and seeing what the secondary and tertiary effects of rules are. For me, that's the, the excitement, the drive. It's a system that seems simple on the surface, but when it becomes alive, it does things you never expected. And that's when I fell in love with Bitcoin because Bitcoin is doing exactly that. It's like, here, hash this number until you get a number that's smaller than some target difficulty and then publish that. And you're like, why it's like don't worry i'm gonna recreate an entire monetary system if you can do that uh, like really and you sort of like learn and learn it's hard it, the worst part about learning games and everybody knows this is it's like you have to internalize all these moving parts simultaneously it's a real skill to learn a new game it's a real skill to teach a new game and it turns out that because i had been doing that so much bitcoin just came kind of naturally to me and then that was this weird advantage I had as a gamer and why I think gamers are well suited in the crypto space because they get the complexities of these multi-dimensional systems acting on each other. Totally. Okay, wait, let's go into that more. Let's, let's explore that because I really do think that we as gamers have a leg up on the whole wide world because we've been living and breathing and existing in the metaverse since, I mean, for me, I was like six years old when I first started gaming. What sort of things should we be looking for as we're moving from traditional gaming into now the metaverse and Web3 gaming, crypto gaming? Like, what are the things we should take with us that are some of the most important parts that we can learn from all the time we've spent grinding out as kids that we can then apply maybe from a mental model perspective to now the metaverse and web three. Sure. That's a pretty broad question. So we'll just take it where it goes. Um, I think that when we're talking web three games, it's very clear to like, see what are the different reasons to do web three games? Um, what are the motivators? And there may be two or three that we've discovered. 
there's this one which is like the axie model i like to call it which is there are whales who want to buy collectibles and those collectibles can only be got through grinding the company decided not to sell the collectibles you have to grind for the collectibles and that grinding is time consuming and the people who are whales don't have time so they pay other people to grind the collectibles right this is the economic model of axie um, and as long as there are whales who want more axes um, there will be more desire to have more axes produced. You'll have to grind more, and then there'll be more people occupied with farming axie. Um, and the brilliant thing there was instead of taking, you know, 90% or 100% of the value of the objects being created, the axie team, you know, at Sky Mavis only takes 5%. Um, and so value gets to circulate in the community and everyone gets richer together. Um, this was a very powerful marketing technique. Um, and it's... Uh, now connected to DeFi in this other interesting way where all these assets get to get leveraged, swapped, and loaned. Uh, and so it's very exciting. Now, that's like one model, financializing games. Uh, the other model is composability and openness in games, right? So we have this problem in game design where because it's very hard to protect your IP, you can, you can protect the sound and you can protect the graphics, but you, the code is tough to protect and the game mechanics are almost impossible to protect. Uh, and so people build these walled gardens, right? These super silos of technology. Um, and no one can build on what anyone else is building. And it's very similar to the finance world. Um, and that means that Web3 has this opening where if we build games in an open source way and we use tokenomics to coordinate people, uh, they can capture value. Right. And so gamers are um, used to these kinds of models uh, as they've been building on top of their own things for a long time uh, through uh, user generated content. Right. So sometime in like sometime very early on in, in, in game design and game companies, they realized that if you could outsource some labor to players, your game would have like longer legs. Um, so like we invented tower defenses in the Blizzard mod space. We invented Dota and the MOBAs in the Blizzard mod space. We uh, invented auto battlers in the Dota 2 mod space. Like uh, Skyrim itself has like hundreds of millions of user hours poured into like building on top of these games. And this has been this like gamer communities being open with what they make and sharing and just making fun things um, now can like plug into web three and capture upside with tokens. Um, and because we're building on blockchains that are like public ledgers that are, you know, uh, permissionless and openly readable, and we're building with standards that are composable, we're going to see lots more interactivity with game making. And that's what's, that's, what's really exciting there. So those are two like totally different reasons to make games on chain and you could mix them if you want, but like, we don't need to, they're both great. Um, yeah. And there might be a third. Well, I actually also see another really interesting use case of when a player plays a game and let's say you get to level 70 in wow, for example, and you've grinded out oh, all yeah. this, you, you grinded out all this gear and you're a total badass, and, but then you want to switch to a different game because you just do you know we're not tied to one game we shouldn't be we should be able to play all the games and enjoy wherever we want to enjoy but with now the metaverse and web 3 
at least the dream is, you can take all that gear and all that time, and you could swap that to another game. So you can trade, uh, you know, you trade out your gear and your NFTs for currency. You then take that currency to a new game and you buy into that game. And you can essentially pick up right where you left off as the gamer. So to me, it almost gives power to the gamer to be game agnostic and to be fluid between the games and not lose all of the time and effort that they've spent grinding out in a game because they can just pick up and go to the next one. Interesting. Um, I think I'll push back on that a little bit. Um, in some sense, like you could do that with WoW, right? Like I sold Icarus, my witch doctor, uh, my troll. He wasn't a witch doctor. He was a troll shadow priest. Uh, I was thinking, wow. I know, wow. Dota. But yeah, my troll, troll shadow priest sold him for 300 bucks when I quit WoW. Um, and it was hard to sell him because like we had a relationship. Uh, we've been together for like 100 days played. Um, but uh, the that 300 bucks, you know, is fungible. It goes in my college fund or it goes into the next game. It's sort of like kind of irrelevant. The, the idea here that I see is that you financialize what people are doing in games and you allow for a non-gray market trading scheme, right? Because I had to like do that illegally, basically. I had to give my entire account. You can't just like give a character. Right. Um, so, but the idea that like labor is fungible in games, it doesn't, it doesn't seem particularly important Web3 solution in some part because it might be bad for the game. I, like, I don't know if you remember the Diablo three real money auction house but essentially uh we made a real money auction house in diablo 3 like they they decided we're gonna like sell items for money uh and you could just buy all your gear uh and players were auctioning gear and it turns out that it just completely ruined diablo uh, and they had to close it two years later not because they weren't making money but because they were churning players because it turns out that like once you can buy everything you want the gameplay experience of grinding it out is gone and that was the fun part like the grind was the joy of Diablo 3. Um, and to keep a really good economy of grind, boredom, upgrade weapons, new kind of place to grind, boredom, upgrade weapons, new place to grind. And, and that's what Liz has been doing for years, right? Like that's what World of Warcraft was. It's just like continually moving the gateposts. <laughs> so you have to keep right. grinding. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, 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 not, I'm not clear that like this transferability is that important? Because you, if you can do that, then you can just always do it with cash anyway. Um, so I'm more excited with uh, a game's protocol being transported. So you play a game and you're getting bored with it. And instead of like playing a new game, you build a layer of game on top of it. Oh, that's And cool. play something new on top of it. So, like, we've seen this before, right? Like, you add capture the flag to a first-person shooter, right? And that's, like, it's the same first-person shooter before plus another objective. Mm -hmm. um, so, one of my favorite Web3 games uh, is Dark Forest. Uh, that's a lie. It's my favorite. My favorite Web3 game is Dark Forest. Um, and uh, the, the game is fully on-chain. Um, and the client is fully open-sourced. Um, and what that means is uh, you can basically see the game state on chain you don't need a client to play it you can just query it yourself you could rebuild a new front end and talk directly to the chain no problem 
Axie is not like that. On, on Axie, you grind on Axie. The central servers like process things and then they decide, okay, this person can mint some SLP and go ahead. Um, in, in Dark Forest, because there's no centralized source at any point, um, anybody can do whatever they want to the game. And so I started playing and it was really hard. Uh, it's like a 4X, you know, space explorer. Um, and so I like recruited some engineers to help me play because I wanted to win. Um, and then eventually I wanted equity in the game or, or work for the company. And they're like, no, we're not hiring anybody. Like go do this like as an independent person. Um, and no, we don't take equity. We don't, we don't, we're not raising. We will never raise. Like it'll only be the community. I was like, fine. So I built a DAO, play Dark Forest. Um, we got pretty good. We came second place once. Um, we built a, a smart contract that let all the players who weren't going to place in the top 60 to just like give their points to us. Um, and collectively, like the bottom 2000 players were able to like get to 38th place and win an NFT. Wow. Um, and that was really cool. Like a composable smart contract to play a game. Like that's not possible in like the wow world where you can just like deploy a new smart right. contract and have the nature of the game change. Um, but like this round, because we've been so active and, and so helpful in Dark Forest, the game makers were like, it's your turn, Dark Forest Dow. Uh, you host the game and you design the rules. And so we're making planets explodable. We're changing the scoring mechanisms. We're uh, going to be shrinking the universe where it like collapses slowly. And we're getting our community to do snapshot votes and decide which mods they want to see in the game. Cool. And that's so cool, right? And the way they get to vote is on their score in the last round. Um, so the amount of points you've got previously, sure, that was good for getting an NFT, but it's also good for governance. And just to like do it for fun, we did it um, quadratic voting. So it's you know, the log of your score. That's how much vote you get. Everyone in crypto wants to see quadratic voting. I'm not totally sure why, but like it's pretty awesome. Like so like. If you have, uh, you know, 10,000 points and someone else has 100 points um, and your log base 10, well, one person's getting four votes and the other person's getting two. Not, you know, 10,000 versus 100. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Not 9,900, but like four versus two. That's a really cool concept that everybody wants to explore. And that's this amazing ancillary benefit of games is that in the real world, it's a very hard voting system to do because blockchains are not Sybil resistant. So you can have like a hundred accounts. So if you have a hundred accounts each with $1, the log base two of a hundred or base 10, right, is still one. Um, uh, so you, can so, get, you can game that system. Yeah, but if you're trying to like do that in Dark Forest, it's actually really hard to create a hundred accounts um, and get just a little bit of points, right? It's much, so, Games have this like way of proving humanity um, that's really exciting because that enables governance. And so they're acting as this like toy exploration space for the future of all DAO governance. Um, so like not only do gamers have this advantage of getting into Web3 games, once they're in Web3 games, they'll have this advantage of getting into Web3 companies and just seeing how Web3 itself works because all the experiments will be done in games. That is way better than what I said. This is why you're. Th this is why you're the expert. No, no, this is amazing. This is this is the best. So, do you see a world where people are they're basically building their own groups and then going out, kind of like what you did, to play the games that they want to play, but like as a group, as their own DAO, and then interacting with other DAOs that are also playing the game 
and then that more being that more being like the catalyst for things to keep growing and continuing is like that back and forth there is that the real well, opportunity this is, yeah this is the promise right so in 2014 skyrim has this thing called like the workshop the steam workshop where players are going to get to finally monetize the mods they've been making for skyrim mm-hmm. and the whole thing shuts down after two days it turns out that what was going on is like people were the metaphor I like to use is helping someone move say i'd like to help you move um and you say great come help me move and at the end of the moving session you're like thanks here's five dollars and you're like no 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 <laughs> first of all i was doing this because it's your friend and second of all five dollars worth way more than that um and so what happened is like people were modding for the love of it and as soon as you put like a monetary label on it it sort of cheapened everything and and on top of that there was all kinds of ip issues and it was a mess but in dark forest and in games like it that are composable you can give players like upside you can say here are governance tokens right you now own some of this protocol like that's like saying you now own this tavern in skyrim like this tavern's yours thanks for your contributions you get like this piece of tavern in everybody's game is now your tavern uh that's inconceivable but in web3 it's possible um and so players can play for equity um, and the best game protocols are going to give up equity. They're going to dilute themselves to their builders um, in a way that like we've been hoping to see in normal VC land where VCs like bring in smart money uh, and then the smart money is supposed to uh, accelerate the project that's being invested in. Well, a company like Dark Force, like, no, we don't actually take money. We only take the smart part. We only take smart. You can't have money. <laughs> uh, and then they give out these planets. And no one knows what the planets are for. Those are like the NFT rewards. But like everyone's kind of like, the planets are probably governance, right? Like at one point, the community will decide that the planets are what you use to vote to determine the future of this game protocol. And if ever the protocol stacks rent, the rent might go to the planet holders who've been like maintaining this protocol. Um, and that's really cool. Like thinking of games as protocols like Bitcoin. Like if Bitcoin's a money god, this like protocol which demands hash power and energy and an exchange gives Bitcoins and sustains itself because it allows for the value storage, capture and transfer. Well, we're going to have these like Ludo gods, these game god protocols that are going to be maintained by their player bases um, that we're going to be like cultists, like worshiping and, and like praying to and growing like Cthulhu cultists, like, you know, like from the 1920s, right? right? Uh, summoning these elder beings that will just like <laughs> absorb our time and energy and we'll maintain them. Because it'll be too fun not to. And we get to own a part of it. We get to be the the people that are most benefiting benefiting from our own hard work. Right. And in Dark Forest, there are three guilds, like major ones. Um, there's like Marrow Dow, which did the last community round. And they're like the swag guild. Like literally they want to make swag and merch and they want to sell like... Um, like people's names on stuff. They want to brand planets in the universe and get sponsorship deals. <laughs> and it's like, really? That's your plan. <laughs> cool. Go for it. Right. And then right on. Um, the other one is Orden GG. And they're like this hardcore Russian guild. Like that just like plays so strong with like really good tech and they only want to win and they crush everybody by like a <laughs> lion slide. Um <laughs> And they're who we came second place to that one time. Um, and 
they're working with us and they're working against us um, and helping. And, uh, you know, when I made that contract that with my with the team that came like 38th, um, one of the biggest contributions came from Orden GG, the, the other DAO, because they oh, were wow. like, well, good luck. This is awesome that you guys built this. Guess what? We're stealing it. We're going we're gonna to have this as our <laughs> own smart contract because everything's composable and permissionless. Right. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, that's yeah, I don't know. It's really cool. So there, there are there are other guilds, and they are bringing players um, and building. Um, and we see these guilds right in like Axie. Um, we're seeing a huge surge in guilds, but normally they're built to organize either really strong players like e athletes, or they're built to organize like very um, casual players who want to grind to earn. Um, and what we're going to see soon, I think, are builder guilds who are going to bring that kind of extra labor to your game um, to like do game development on it and expand upon it and like maintain it, assuming you create an open enough protocol to play with. That is inspiring. That is amazing. Because what I'm seeing there, what I'm seeing is like, an opportunity there is for me, I'm not, I don't really have a super technical background. Like I don't, I'm not a programmer. I don't know how to code. So that to me screams, Hey, make friends with people who can program, make friends with people who are total badasses from a gaming, like game theory and how to play optimally and like athletic side, and then get somebody super creative and almost build like, a faction that can then go out into the world and play these different games and contribute and be real stakeholders in a lot of different communities. Like it almost gives opportunity to everybody to be able to bring whatever skill set they have into a community and then participate in all this in ways that have never been possible before. Totally. Yeah. That, that's, that's a lot of how I see DAOs and guilds and web three working is because they're kind of low stakes and any labor is better than none, you, you just kind of come in and contribute what you want to and what you're good at and what you like to do. And actually that leads to really powerful results. So when I started Dark Forest DAO, I recruited engineers, but I ended up recruiting a graphic designer, uh, a community manager, uh, and uh, just like players, like people who didn't code, but were analyst types who could like at least look at data. Um, and everybody contributed in their own way. Um, and what was great is the, so at one point we interviewed artifacts. So there's in the game, you can like get an NFT artifact and it's connected to an AI and you can ask it questions and it'll like spew out lore from the story. Um, and we had our community person who's like doing a PhD in English, uh, like interview the artifacts and then like write her findings and like sort of communicate the story to the community. Um, and the designers love that. The game design and they gave her a planet. They're like, "Thank you for this contribution," which is totally outside wow. of code or building, right? Um, and I thought that was like really special to see a different way of doing it. Um, and then the graphic designer, one of the things we leaned on him for was to build um, like NFTs, like PO apps, um, to to thank the players who are helping us win. So in any given round, we would like seek aid from a larger community and everyone who did provide aid, well, we would reward them with like tokens in some way or another and kind of make good on this idea that we're all going to like share the wealth of a victory. That's really, really interesting. Um, 
Okay, I I know we're kind of we've gone down this rabbit hole. I want to make sure we get to talk about um, a couple more things here. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you have taken all this knowledge and everything you've learned, both from like the auditing side, the the game um, study side, that what you've been learning um, with the DAO side, and then how does that all contribute to the accelerator and what does it actually mean to go through an accelerator and like, what does that whole thing look like? Sure. So an accelerator's job is to get a company from where it currently is to its next milestone in a third of the time, right? You're basically giving up usually some kind of equity for speed um, because being fast to market can be all the difference in the world. Um, And so that's why they call them accelerators. The first accelerator that mattered and maybe the most important of all time is the Y Combinator accelerator. Um, and it's set the sort of standard for how to best accelerate. And part of our team is made from that one. Um, but it's had a really hard time with Web3. It's just been like a paradigm. It's not cracked and it has not very strong Web3 presence compared to everything else it does. So we sort of found that niche. Um, and our first niche was very clearly like DeFi. You know, it was a year and a half ago. It was really hard to raise money to do DeFi. No one believed in it. Um, and uh, our team was like, you know what? We're going to do it anyway. Um, and it wasn't me. It was just Imran and Chow and Jacob, like the founders. And they would just like hold calls and they would help connect people and give them advice um, based on their past. Um, and then have lectures and speakers come speak to them to give them like the next sort of steps on how to build their companies. Uh, and they, they turned out to be really big companies, like the ones we early on accelerated, Token Sets and Synthetics and Zero X. Uh, you look at our website, there's some cool ones. Um, we have accelerated now like 15% of all top 100 DeFi projects by market cap. Wow. Which is cool. Um, and what it looks like at the accelerator is, well, you apply. And usually if you're in the top like 5% of founders, we'll have you come in. Um, if you're in the top 10, we'll talk to you to figure out if you're in the top five. Um, and what that looks like is, um, it really doesn't matter if you're building like sunglasses on a Niancat NFT on a Solana ecosystem that like turn purple on Thursdays. Like, I don't, I don't actually care what your product is. I like to say, um, what I want to see is like super strong founders will be able to pivot a lot, uh, because we have no idea where this space is going. Right. Uh, and so, we want people who show resilience, like who are going to be able to like stick through a bear market, and build through it bad, like even though it sucks. Um, founders who are curious, who can show leadership, who are sharks, who hustle, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and then when they make it in, um, they join this tight knit community who meet all the other founders who become their like social network, their like safety net. Um, they can invest in each other's projects. Um, then we bring in a whole bunch of mentors who every day give like a one hour talk, um, either about a piece of technology or a concept or how to get a kind of service done. Uh, and at the end of that like seven week period, um, we spend two weeks building out a demo, like a three minute video. Um, and anybody who wants to see the demos from our last cohort, which was only game projects, 12 game projects, um, you can go see it on our uh, Twitter or on our YouTube video channels at DeFi Alliance. Um, yeah. And then they give a presentation and then they raise. 
Um, and the idea is having gone through the accelerator, there's a lot of um, demand because we people know we filtered to a really tight group and that we've given them a ton of help. Um, and then generally, like at Y Combinator, the terms have been for like $150,000, you give up 7% of your company. Um, we have like <laughs> much more generous terms in part because we're not trying to build um, uh, the the best accelerator in the world, although we, well, we are trying to build the best accelerator, but that's not the end purpose. The end purpose is actually to build a nation state. We're, we're trying to build like a deep, robust network of like the best builders in the world who all know each other and all get upside in a new and novel way that we can't really talk about on this podcast right now because we haven't made announcements. But um, the idea is to really align like domain experts. And so that's what we're doing at DeFiLance. If you want to like get aligned with a bunch of domain experts and you want to go fast and build hard, um, come apply defiance.co slash games or slash DeFi. But, you know, we do anything Web3 at this point. So when you're looking at, okay, these are founders that are come up and coming. They have this idea. I know you mentioned a few different characteristics of like you're, it seems like you're mostly betting on the people instead of the idea. But can you really dive deep a little bit more into, okay, well, who are the people that are going to be the most successful? Like, are they just going to stick, like stick through until, you know, somebody has to pry their, you know, their hands off of it forcefully or like, is it just the resilience? Like, what are you really seeing are the people who are the most successful in this space? So it's a great question. Uh, actually, yesterday there was an amazing study posted about who are, what are the educational backgrounds of the people who succeed. Um, and there's like a huge disproportion of master students, MBA students, and PhDs, which is not what we expected. We expected a lot more kids who were dropouts of college or just college grads. Um, and I don't think you have to have one of those to succeed. But what they do, interestingly, is they filter. So like it's really painful, as I said earlier, to get through a PhD. Uh, and as a result, like if you did do it, like it's a good sign that you are resilient through like you will be able to build through a bear market and you will like see this project to an end, uh, even if it kills you. Um, so that's one piece of it. Because um, I don't think the education itself is important. I think it's the sort of trial and tribulation of it all. Um, maybe the learning how to learn because they don't teach crypto in school. So like, and the crypto they're teaching in school, like it's outdated. Literally, un unless you're like under Dan Bonet, like, or like some of the people at MIT or Stanford, like it's like very outdated, all, almost as fast as they can create the curriculum. Um, okay. Uh, other things we like to see in founders are like past success, right? Like that's easy. Success, success is a good indicator. Um, other than that, um, there's a kind of taste that we look for. So what have you been working on in your spare time, right? Like, are you on the coolest protocols, doing the coolest things? Um, that's useful. Um, and then when it does come to projects, we look at what the total addressable market cap is in a way that isn't really possible in normal fields. So when you think about people investing in games, they think, will this game be fun and generate revenue? And then eventually turn this thing into a studio that can make more games. Right, that's like the goal of investing in normal games. But Axie, 
made this game that uh, has enormous amount of players who have no financialization. Like, they're unbanked. They have no credit cards. Uh, 25%, I think. Um, wow. And what that means is they get to be the bank of a huge number of people. They get to start providing loans one day and and Forex, like foreign exchange, and remittances to a huge number of players. It's not, the addressable market isn't like some fun game that you play. It's like a new financial paradigm, right? Where an enormous number of people get to leapfrog banking technology. Um, and the Ronin network is what's gonna capture those fees and those products are gonna capture those fees. And that's, that's a remarkable upside, right? And so when I'm looking at game projects, I'm trying to see what are the other benefits that we're going to get to extract from this one. So like one of my best examples is a game in our last cohort called AI Arena. In AI Arena, you're playing Mortal Kombat, basically, uh, versus an AI. Uh, and you just like beat the shit out of it because it's stupid. But it learns from you um, and starts to fight like you. And the more you fight it, the more it fights like you. Eventually, it'll like basically tie you. Uh, because it, it is you. Um, it knows all your moves and everything you like to do, and it'll just like mirror match you almost. Um, and at that point, your AI, um, which is like on the cloud, um, is referenced by an NFT. And that NFT um, can go to battle against other NFTs in the game. Um, what happens is when your NFT fights another NFT, the cloud runs the simulation of both your AIs, fights them, and then plays out the battle for you in front of you, and you see if you've done a good job teaching your AI. Does your AI learn when it battles other AIs? So you can then pay to have your AI train against that other AI that beat it. Um, and so you pay the other person for having built this AI. Uh, and you've built this marketplace of AIs uh, where there are these valuable objects that are trading uh, that can be fractionalized, that can be loaned out, um, that can climb leaderboards and then you, know, you can keep retraining and, and the competition is quite different. But this is for a game, but it doesn't stop at a game. This is the toy example. You can have these AIs for trading assets, these AIs for running city lights, these AIs for doing literally anything. Um, and then they're just a financial object on chain represented by this NFT. And that's really cool, right? Because when we think of NFTs, we think of JPEGs, but why not AIs, right? And now they're value productive assets. Like this thing does stuff. Um, and one of the problems we had at Dark Forest was you know, we were trying to run a guild from one account, um, but whoever the pilot of the account is has all the private keys. They can do whatever they want with everybody's assets. Um, it was like, wouldn't it be great if an AI could play this game for us, right? Wouldn't it be great if we could trust, right, like a robot to do this? Um, and so the idea of AI solving coordination problems is going to be really interesting too, as they like become these trusted parties, because you can trust an AI more than you can trust people sometimes. Well, I think it depends on who it is that trained the AI. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. But that's fascinating. Okay. So it's not just like, what are we trying to do with this idea here? It's like, well, what's the logical conclusion if you extrapolate that out after 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, like what could this turn into? Exactly. Because we're in a new paradigm shift of web three. And games are the fastest place to prototype and iterate. And so 
these games are going to be where we see the future first, right? And this has always been the case uh, for games because they have more budget and more excitement and more players and more users. So we get things done in games first and then things trickle out from there. That is fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. So, okay, so you're looking at the founder, their resilience, their past success. Are you are you looking at them and thinking, okay, like, are you a thinker where you have really good plans, but then maybe you struggle on executing those plans, so maybe we want to team you up with somebody else, or maybe we're going to pass on that? Or like, okay, we see you're more of an engineer, but you don't really have a, like, you have a great product, a great, team but you don't really have like a visionary or like how are you looking at you know it's almost like sizing Great up question. Sure. yeah 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 so first we have a very strong preference for co-founders like two or three founders two to four one is really tough that's very early probably too early for us um we've made some exceptions um and because there are some people who are just two people in one they just like <laughs> are that productive um but uh, the sense here is that uh, we definitely want someone technical. This is a technical space. Um, strong engineers are a must in any project. If you are not the strong engineer as the founder, you better have one on your team who is deeply tied to it. Um, so that's one. Um, the other piece uh, is the visionary thing has to be there. Like you need to we can only help your vision so much, right? Like you need to be able to make those leaps and be like, okay, if this is the case, then that will be the case. And that will be the case. And that's where we're going, right? Because that's the 1000X or 10,000X idea, right? Um, and so trying to find people who have great ideas, who like hustle, who like execute all day, right? Deliverables um, and who have that resilience, it's hard. Like it's hard to find people like that and hard to know who is like that just from a few conversations. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we're always on the lookout um, trying to figure it out. And honestly, people glorify founders. It's like a misery, right? Like you, if your project succeeds, you're there for 10 years doing the same thing, um, right? Like you're lucky if it fails and you get out. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, it's just like you work really hard for 10 years with a lot of pressure, right? Your family's money, your friend's money, your investor's money, all riding on you. There's um, it's it's not meant for most people being founders, right? Um, it's much easier to work for a founder. And like if you were employee 1000 at Facebook, your equity is still worth 10 million today. Like, it's not like you need to be a founder to be rich, right? <laughs> you need to right. be an early employee to be rich. Like, you, you, there's lots of ways to make it in this space. That's really interesting. So when you're, okay, so we've moved now past the actual, like, vetting process. When companies get into the actual accelerator and then they go through this model, when you say, okay, You've gone through it and you kind of took us through what that looks like, um, but then go forth and prosper. Like, what are you then looking for at that stage? Like, are you are you looking for them to go raise more money or to just keep building and building community? Like, what are you seeing the most successful projects doing after they get accelerated? Sure. So what we're seeing is 
you're right. You need community. It's like a huge part of this is community. A huge part of your moat is your community. Your user base is your community. Um, if you're building composable things, that community is going to build on top of you uh, and make you stickier. Um, so community management is really an important skill um, that we expect teams to have and, and do and grow. Um, and is often like sidelined. Um, you know, we expect teams to come back to us if they need help to connect with other cohort members. We have a lot of like incest at the DeFi Alliance, like teams will like who've been in different generations or in the same generation, like kind of merge or do group projects together because they're two pieces of, a, of an equation uh, that they can just like complete. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, a lot of the time they're right before institutional liquidity mode. So they've finished their product. They've got some retail users, not a lot. Uh, and they've got their code reviews done. And now it's time to parade them in front of Jump Trading and Cumberland and Brevin Howard. I don't know. These big billion-dollar prop funds or hedge funds who, who have capital to allocate and market make with. Or Wintermute. That's a good one in DeFi. Um, these, these people have tools and APIs and networks and are integrating a lot of platforms. And they're going to maintain your price for you. And they're going to arbitrage in your protocol. And what they want is equity in your protocol. So before they make your protocol usable, they're going to buy a piece of it. So think of this way. You build a new trading platform, but there's nothing on it. No one's going to use your trading platform. It's like building a new social media network. If no one's on it, no one's going to do anything. So you no pay like an all-star, right, to come like start tweeting on your new platform. That's sort of like paying a market maker. because so they don't want to be paid. They want upside. They want to like get exposure to the incredible success they're going to bring you. And so we help with negotiating those deals. That's part of our early DNA and where our founder came from was like Chicago where all the prop traders live. Um, so that's something we expect to see. For the games, the same thing is happening, but with guilds. So I have this like telegram where I maintain like 20 guild leaders um, and I feed them deal flow. And what my goal is, is to say, hey, here's a game that's raising you should invest in this game and then get your players to go play that game so that that game's value goes up. Um, and if it's a play to earn game, you can make some money extracting rent from the players who are playing on it, like the way Yield Guild Games does with its Axie players. But long-term, you're an investment fund. You don't need to pay, you don't need to take money away from your players, right? Your upside is like so much bigger than that. Right. It's sort of like a joke to like, you know, extract like ten dollars a week from a thousand people. Um, let them have all of it and then you can grow more players, bigger moat, uh, less less requirements from your players, because that's the kind of money games are going to want investment from. Like they're not going to want VCs who are going to like give some opinions and some thoughts. They're going to want VCs who are going to bring an players. army of players. Yeah, that's so powerful. Right. Uh, and so guilds right now are trying to figure it out because it's quite tricky for guilds to get equity. Um, it's a little easier for them to get SAFs and SAFs, like, sorry, SAFs, like tokens and simple agreements for future tokens um, and build treasuries um, and have like a token govern that treasury. Um, and that's what YGG is, by the way, like YGG is buying up the metaverse land and its token is a representation of that, like, land grab um, and its players are going to play in that metaverse and make that land more valuable 
Um, it's all this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. So trying to get games to get involved with that. That's a big part of my like push after they graduate. That's amazing. So when you're looking at this landscape, I mean, you're so deeply entrenched. Like you're seeing people who are building the future. You're connecting them with people who are the present and you're kind of facilitating and connecting and it's an incredible bridge. And I'm very, very grateful that you do that because you're really helping to build the metaverse from your perspective. Where's this all going? Like everybody has a thousand opinions, but nobody else is going to have your opinion. I'm very interested to know, like what are we going to see in the future? Where is this going and how can we best be prepared as gamers, founders, and or investors? Great question. I mean, the future's got a lot of details in it. So I'll, I'll focus on the ones I, I'm thinking about. One of the things I'm finding is that the metaverse has a lot less friction for a lot of things. Um, so one thing I like to think about is like art. Uh, I think that's very easy for people to realize. At first, everyone was like, man, why would I want to buy NFTs of JPEGs? Like, that's not the real object. It was like a real object is much more like tangible and meaningful. It is the same thing people said about Bitcoin, right? Like, why would I buy Bitcoin? I could buy gold. It's like real. It's real. But actually, art's a pain in the ass. First, you have to sell at things like Christie's or eBay and lose huge cuts of what you're selling. Um, you have to transport it. You have to frame it. You have to keep it like at a right air temperature, right air humidity. Um, uh, you have to make sure the provenance is good, which is like fucking impossible. Like to make sure you don't have a forgery. Oh, what a headache. Whereas like if I have a JPEG that's like an NFT on chain using IPFS, like I can guarantee this is the correct JPEG. Oh, and the smart contract doesn't have an admin key. Like this is the right JPEG. It's always been the right JPEG. Brianna owned it once. You know, Jay-Z owned it once, I owned it once, you owned it once, and now it's owned by like Jeff Bezos. And this is all fact, right? Um, and uh, it's displayed on like a special kind of TV. I don't know, it looks like a fancy Kindle or something in a house somewhere. Uh, but, you know, who cares about that part? It's because your like virtual house is more relevant, right? Like, and your virtual house doesn't necessarily look like a 3D house in my mind. Like it looks like a Discord or a Twitter or uh, Instagram, like there's just like dec decoration in your virtual landscape um, <laughs> and you own it uh, and you're speculating on it. Um, and I think that, that like, as people realize how much friction the physical world has as we go forward and build on our digital assets, um, they're gonna like hate it more and more. Uh, so like gold, Right, like, was it like two years ago? We found out like two billion dollars of gold was just copper painted yellow, right? Um, and uh, that's like a pain in the ass. Like that doesn't happen with Bitcoin. You never realize, oh no, it was Dogecoin painted Bitcoin. No, it's like it doesn't happen. Um, and so, and you know, if you want to move your gold, you gotta schlep it. And right. and if you're if you want your gold to be a hedge against like total systemic collapse, good luck because it can't be in a vault somewhere that a government can seize. You have to bury it. So now you're maintaining a pile of buried gold. What a headache, right? Uh, and so Bitcoin is just this like clean solution. As long as you like give up on this fetishization of the real, um, the virtual is composable, permissionless, it moves fast, it keeps, keeps value. Um, and so that snowballs, um, right? 
and we're just gonna have less and less tolerance for meat space. Um, and so like, we're gonna like eat in meat space and we're gonna exercise to make sure our meat sacks don't rot, but we're gonna spend like a lot of time on screens, more than you'd ever hope or imagine. I love the fact that, that <laughs> you described it that way. That's hilarious. Especially the part about the gold, like you don't want to have to sit there and defend your buried <laughs> pile of gold. Like that totally sucks. <laughs> it totally sucks. Um, and it's way worse with art. It's just way worse with art. So it's, it's a real problem saver. And, you know, I studied aesthetic analytic philosophy. That was like a big part of my research. And the artwork isn't the physical object anyway. It's in the acts done by the artist. Like everybody knows the locus of the work is in the ideas of the artist as executed into the materials. The materials are an index. They're a history. Like they're like a, they're like a, a line drawn in the sand or, or footprints in the sand, right? That say someone was there. They're not it represent the something else. Yeah, it points to the act that mattered, right? And so it doesn't need to be physical. Right. That's such a good point. And actually, the one thing that I would I would actually say, I would actually push back on a little bit would be the fact that one's real versus not real to me they're both real one is just a physical thing that you can you know it's maybe like like a carbon-based form of something or you know it versus a virtual it's virtually real like physically or virtually i I don't know the right way to describe it but i think you know what i'm talking about because it's real you say they're both real or you say being real doesn't really matter one of the two right yeah um yeah exactly exactly um yeah. Okay. So much goodness here. I'm so, so glad we got to do this. I want to be very respectful of your time. So I have one last question for you. Um, but what question should I be asking you that I just wouldn't think to ask? Oh, well, mm. okay. Something people don't realize is that everybody in web three who's very involved like at a deep level, always has two faces. They have a face for the public and they have a face internally. And the face internally is allowed to be worried about the SEC. It's allowed to be worried about regulations, but the face in the public is not. And so a lot of behaviors that we think people are doing for one reason, they're doing for other reasons that they can't talk about. And so everybody runs around when they're outside the space with a naive view on the world. Um, And uh, it's very, it's very dangerous to like make assumptions based on that financial ones uh, because it's scary, right? Like, so like, here's a good example. Um, If a protocol is truly decentralized, um, it's much harder to regulate. Um, And what true decentralization means usually is like, could the founding team like go to the Bahamas for a month or a year or 10 years and the protocol would still run? That's like a good example. Um, does the founding team still hold a controlling interest? No? Okay, that's also good. Right? So like when a founding team like gives away a shit ton of tokens as part of a marketing scheme and it was like, look, how good a marketing scheme built community out of nowhere. Everybody's got shared bags. Everyone's like celebrating this project. Like, yeah, but also they were going to go to jail if they didn't do it. Um, <laughs> and I think, I think there's this kind of piece that people don't, yeah, don't get. Um, and like when they get mad at companies for like not building in public as much, like 
as soon as you have a launch token and you're building in public, you're kind of like doing stock price manipulation. Um, and like some people who have a conservative view in the law don't like for you to build in public like that. They want you to build, release, um, have the market respond, build, release, have the market respond. And so there's a, so when people get mad, right? Like they, they don't know why. And it's not like the community manager can say like, look, we're trying to dodge the SEC here, buddies. Like, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, so that's my like, uh, advice. It's like the crypto is so much more complicated than people give it credit for. The iceberg tip that you get to see is just like a tiny, tiny piece. Well, so what's the actionable thing to do with that? To look beyond and try to put yourselves in other people's shoes to understand where everybody's coming from, to have a better awareness yourself? I guess the two things I would say are to be empathetic or to be open-minded about why people are doing things because they're doing things for reasons you don't have or know. Um, and uh, to really avoid being a middle curver. So I don't know if you've seen this meme where it's like that racist bell curve from the 80s. Um, and on one side, you have like this like idiot. And this other side, you have this like cloaked figure Jedi. And then in, in the middle, you've got the point Dexter with the haircut and the big glasses. And the, the joke is always the same, right? The, the Jedi and the idiot say the exact same thing. And the really, really smart middle curver with 100 IQ has all the reasons for why something's like not going to work or going to work and is wrong. It's just like different from the other two. Um, and it just turns out that almost everybody in the crypto space is stuck in the middle curve thing because they're working with half information, right? The people who make it, <laughs> the people who are too stupid to realize they know absolutely nothing. Um, and the people who truly know what's happening on the inside. Um, Those are the people who have like serious advantages. So my recommendation is like realize that you are almost always at risk of being a middle curver and that the financial decisions you make are generally very bad Um, and on too little information. We built the world's best casino in DeFi and gaming. And, um, you know, it's just like sad that that's what we built so far is the world's best casino. (laughs) So, okay, two very quick follow-up questions on that. One being somebody who works with a lot of the top people and helping to create this future and probably getting to be in the room where it happens, like, are we in good hands? Mm, Good question. Sometimes some of the protocol builders are really in it for like spiritual, soulful, like meaningful, let's make things better reasons. Um, and some are in it a lot, like I was mentioning before, like the Cthulhu cultists who just want to make an impact and don't care what it is. Like, it's really cool to summon a money God. Like, it's really cool to like summon an elder God. Like that's an achievement. Now it has nasty repercussions for the rest of humanity as we're enslaved by demons until the end of time. But it was cool while you did it. Um, (laughs) so, so, but those aren't the worst people. And then <laughs> there's another set of people <laughs> who built a bad project and now have to LARP like it was a good one um, um, and convince people it was a good one long enough to either fix it or make them all go bankrupt. Um, and we, we try really hard at DeFi Alliance not to 
associate with those people because our reputation is the most valuable thing we have. Um, because we're a coordinating mechanism in the space. Um, so generally the way to solve for this problem is to find the people whose reputations matter most, um, like have the most to lose because they're already rich and they depend on future deal flow that depends on their good reputation and sort of like listen to them. So like they're your safest bet is to listen to my cousin, Dan, who's the head of research at Paradigm. Like he won't steer you wrong. <laughs> But he won't be one of those truly good guys. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> Dan's <laughs> one of the cultist, like evil summoning people. <laughs> so, then, so then the 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 second part of that is if you are a middle curver right now and you don't wanna be and you don't wanna decrease your intelligence and go to the left side of the spectrum, mm -hmm. you wanna get to the room where it happens, you wanna actually let's assume good intentions. You want to be one of the people who are trying to make the world a better place, not summoner or LARPer, mm -hmm. but builder. Uh, how do you do that? Like, what is the, what is the most optimal path to going towards that extreme? Totally. So uh, it's a, it's a long learning journey. It, it's got several steps. I, I do think it's essential eventually that everybody learns how to code a little bit. Um, mm. took me a long ass time to admit that to myself. Like <laughs> it was like 30. The first time I learned how to code, my first language was solidity, which is not recommended, but alas, it's what I did. Um, so, uh, the, I think the most fun way is cryptozombies.io. It'll like teach you how to make an NFT game. Uh, it's fully like program in the terminal, like of the browser. Super good. Um, Use as many products as you can, actually. Um, build up the DGEN score. You can go to dgenscore.com to see what your DGEN score is. Um, and then uh, start contributing to DAOs on governance. Like Find a DAO you like, just get involved. DAOs are, so many people are like DAO thought leaders or like DAO leaders, but we're lacking DAO doers. There's like a bajillion DAOs and it's like 40 staff to service them. Uh, there's unlimited room to do work for DAOs right now. Um, and so just like be an executor operator. Uh, and if you execute operate in a DAO long enough, you know how the tech stack works. Um, and you've been uh, trying out the different products in the space, which is really expensive on gas. So like do it on Polygon. I, it's okay. Like you'll go broke testing everything on Ethereum, but you might not get all the sweet airdrops. So it's like this, like, which one do I do? Um, and then, and then when it's time to apply for jobs, include that shit on your CV, right? Tell me your DGEN score. Tell me the DAOs you're snapshotting votes for and actually doing work for. And, uh, you know, tell me the products you've used and like have thoughts on because, um, the problem is CVs are built for web two. <laughs> like, and web three is like a fundamentally like hobbyist space right now. Um, and it's hard to reflect that hobbyist nature in your CV. So like work really hard to like communicate um, your degenness. There um, should almost be an on-chain resume thing that includes all the activity that you do. So degenscore is, is that. degenscore.com will look ah. at your wallet and it'll tell you how much DeFi you've interacted with. Oh, but it's, cool. it's But it's not great for operational security. So like what I say is like, Play with not a lot of money on a wallet a lot. 
And then like, if you're going to use money, like in a meaningful way, use a different wallet and don't tell people about that one. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Just no one wants to be the victim of a $5 wrench attack. Definitely. Um, cool. Well, well, I want to thank you so much. Uh, I'm so grateful that you took the time to share and, and come on the show. You're the absolute man. Thank you very, very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have awesome. a great one. And to everybody watching and listening, I want to thank you all, and I will see you all on the next episode. And we're going to close the stream down now. Toodaloo.